Oh, for sure. Well, thank you. Yeah, and like, I mean, what, what we're starting with is the obvious. You know, like we we found a, a fund framework that will work the way it currently stands in our situation. And so we can apply it without having to change anything. But we have big ambitions to push back on the SEC and be a strong advocate to continue to open things up. Like we don't want it to have to be like this forever. You know, like people should be able to put money in a regular venture fund if they wanted to. And we want to see the, the progress of the policy to get there. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Jesse Randall, founder and CEO of Sweater Ventures. Jesse, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fantastic. Good to see you again. Yeah. So for people not familiar with Sweater, give us the elevator pitch. Yeah, for sure. So Sweater, it's sort of like the Robin Hood of venture capital. So it's a mobile app that allows anyone to invest into a fully managed professional venture fund. It reduces the typical minimum from you know $500,000 down to $500. And we deliver everything back on the phone. So it's kind of like having courtside seats. So the whole process of venture capital and you get to benefit from the upside just like the wealthy do. It's fun. I think I've got courtside seats to Miami right now. It's getting a little chilly in Utah like <laughs> on the rooftop yeah, no there. Kidding. I feel like I, I feel a little bit like I'm in Miami with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not so uh, shout out to our friend, uh, mutual friend, Jay Davis, got us connected here. Hey. How did you find out about Creatively, by the way? Oh, shoot. Friend of a friend. I was poking around looking for some creative, kind of like what Creatively does. And I didn't know Creatively existed. Someone else brought them up and they came highly recommended and they facilitated an introduction to Jay. And then I met Jay. And Jay, Jay's fun. the one that sold it all. Jay is extraordinarily talented. Him, he and I just clicked. We think the same way. We see the startups the same way. So yeah, I was, I was sold the second I met him. Yeah, I'm a fan. He's been on the show a number of times. By the way, I'm just interested... Like, do you remember any of like the funny videos? <laughs> they're, they're funny videos that like made you think like, oh yeah, these are guys I want to talk to. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, after I got introduced, because I, I really didn't know that they existed before then. But once we got introduced and I started looking at some of their work, I remember watching the Clean Cult video was the first one that I watched. And that was really like storytelling, founder story, long form, you know, but it was witty and it was professional and it was on brand. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that it's, uh, it was well done. I also recall watching the homie video. Oh, what's, what was the name? It was like their haunted house. So they had the, the Adams couple, the Adams family couple looking for a house, but they were looking for a haunted house. So for those who don't know, homie is like, I don't know, they help you buy houses um, and cut out commissions and a bunch without, of other stuff. Yeah, so. without paying the huge realtors. Yeah, exactly. So, so they had their CEO was, and Johnny Hanna on a couple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So jo Johnny's fantastic. Um, so I remember watching that one, uh, and those those were probably my favorites. And I was like, you know, so one of the things that stuck out to me in the way that creatively position themselves is that there there are other firms or you know creative agencies that do these type of videos, but they they all kind of have the same flavor when you look at the portfolio of all these different companies. They they all kind of have the same tone. And Creatively was unique because each of their videos really had a flair to it that made them all seem like they could have been created by different agencies. And the way it was explained to me was basically other other places are true to their brand when they make a video for you, where Creatively is true to your brand. 
And they really make sure that the video is reflective of who you are as a culture. And that resonated with me a lot because I, I didn't want to be just like any other, you know, razzmatazz, hey, bang, flash, look, look at this cool video. It needed to reflect us and our tone. And that was important for us because we're a financial app, right? Like we're, we're treading a very, very uh, interesting line and we had to make sure that we didn't do it wrong. Which is how I got introduced to you actually was I was at Jay's office and he's like, hey, you got to watch this new one we just made. And I, I, fe- I felt like his, their style, like there's just so much to poke fun at of like, you know, Warren Buffett calls it the high priest of finance. He says like <laughs> high priest of finance, you need to use a lot of complicated words to make you feel dumb, to, to make you feel too dumb to make your own financial choices so that you'll have to pay their fees, you know? <laughs> and I, there's a lot of opportunity for comedy and I, and I was a little jealous that you beat me to it. I feel like you guys got out there first, so... Yeah, we, we poked the bear, as we like to say, a little bit, you know, we, and it was funny be, as, as we went through that because like, we felt like we took a risk in the way, like the angle that we took on that video. And I, I feel bad for anyone watching this because if you haven't watched the video, go and look it up because we, we kind of poke fun at the venture capital industry. Not kind of, we really poke fun at the venture capital industry. And we were nervous about taking that angle, you know, cause we could have taken so many other angles that, that wouldn't have attacked the industry and kind of the status of the industry. But we decided like, hey, we need to go for it. Like if people can't handle, or if the industry can't handle us poking fun at them a little bit, then it's revealing an entirely different problem, which proved to be true because it really allowed us to kind of, as we say, separate the sheep from the goats, you know, or however you want to say that, the wheat from the chaff. In, in terms of the venture community, because we get one of two reactions and they're very different from each other. You know, so we either get the reaction of like, oh, that's awesome. I totally agree. I, I know someone that matches every one of those stereotypes that you made fun of. The industry needs to change. I'm excited about what you're doing. And that's about 80% of people. And then there's 20% who are kind of offended and are like, that's that's not the way things are. How dare you? You know, retail investors shouldn't be in this asset class. This is the reason why. And it's like, well, I know who I don't want to work with now. And it, it's actually been really nice. You know, what's funny about that, though, is the elitism, like the elitism of like, this is only for us. Right. And don't get me wrong. I think that there's tons that's wrong with venture capital. I think that there is a lot of rampant speculation that I can't endorse. I think there's excesses. There's all sorts of stuff. But the idea that your financial intelligence is a function of your bank account is just not that awesome. I mean, like, you want to know what unaccredited investors are the largest holders of venture? All of the founders who put all of their own <laughs> cash into starting it. Exactly. Do you, do you know what I mean? Look, exactly. look at the literally tens of thousands of unaccredited investors in the asset class, the people who paid to start it. You know what I mean? Oh, I totally and, agree. And totally like, agree. I, I like, you know, I'm, I'm, I like Nicholas Taleb and his barbell stuff of like, hey, don't do anything in the middle. Do a bunch of like stuff that is extremely high likelihood of paying. And if you want to do some gambling, like go all the way to the other end. <laughs> don't do stuff in the middle. Like, like, you know, shoot for the one in a million, right? But you don't, you don't do great being in the middle. The only problem is that this in, the, in an effort to keep people safe, we haven't gone for education. We haven't gone for stiffer penalties on the people who commit the frauds. No, we just said you're not, you're not rich enough to, to spot a good deal. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't exactly. feel super American to me. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. I mean, so well, this might be a good opportunity to like kind of tell the story of how I got to this in the first place. So let me let me just tell it real quick, and then I want to extrapolate on what you just said. So sweater was started because I went to start a VC fund to be the GP, the one that runs it, and almost immediately upon going through this the beginnings of this process. I was confronted with the fact that I couldn't invest in my own fund because I wasn't accredited. And I mean, I knew about that rule before that, but I hadn't really, it hadn't really struck me. I hadn't been told I couldn't do it until it hit me, you know? And, and I was like, well, that, okay, that's, that's kind of dumb. I'm the guy running the fund. How could I not put my own money at risk in my own fund? And so I, as part of my, my graduate work, I, I have a policy degree in addition to my MBA. And so I was curious and I was like, I want to find out really what the history of this whole thing is. And so you dig into it and make a long story short, I didn't like the answer that I found. It's from this law called the 1940 Investment Act that was put in place, the 1933 Securities Act. They were both put in place after the Great Depression. Lots of people got screwed on Black Friday or Black Tuesday, whatever it was that all that stuff that happened back during the Great Depression. And so politicians were trying to put protective measures in place. And so these two acts were really to protect widows and orphans, as they often say, right? The Those that could be taken advantage of. But they drew the circle way too big and ended up basically creating this law that like, when you dig into it, I didn't like the, the very, to me, condescending answer that I found, which is basically, if you're not wealthy, then you're not smart enough to understand this and, and we need to protect you from it. And I was so irked as I dug into that because I was like, ah, like maybe in the 40s that was true and maybe in the 70s. I don't know. But like today, are you kidding me? Like I have dozens of friends who are not accredited who understand this asset class better than some of the friends I have who are actually in the asset class. Like you got to be kidding me. And so I just to me, I was just like, this this is the end. It's, it's time for this to change. And that's that's where I shifted gears and decided to build sweater instead of building a traditional fund. Listen, I think that. U.S. law enforcement should get much more involved in white-collar crime. I think that there should be much more required education for people who are going to get into high-risk investments. But this, like, kind of draconian blanket, like, oh, you're not rich enough. You know, like, for instance, in in our first fund, we did a Reg C offering so we could do a general solicitation for, for our real estate fund, right? Mm-hmm. And we have friends who were sure they were accredited. And when we finally did like the verify investor thing before they put their cash in, they came up like eight grand short on their previous year because then it, it was combined. So now you have to have made yeah. 300 grand a year, right? And they yeah. came up like, yeah. it was like two, 293 their previous year, right? Yeah. And, and just like the idea that like that $7,000 is what makes them wise enough to choose for themselves it was just so silly facing that and they, yeah. they, they couldn't be in, you know? Oh, and, that's a great example. And, oh. and like, I'm not saying that we should like, listen, there, like, there is this great book called Nudge. Have you heard of this one about responsible paternalism or something? Have you heard okay. of this book? No, I haven't. It just goes through. It's like, hey, listen, we should give people freedom, but we should also point them in the right direction. He's like, you know, most university professors get their job while they're single. And they put their mom as the beneficiary of their 401k if they die. Okay. (laughs) And when they retire 30 something years later, most of them are married and their mom is not around anymore. And if you were to look it up, their mom is still the beneficiary of their 401k. And their (laughs) wife never got on there or their husband never got on there. Right. So he's like, you know, we know that we know that setting things up differently can help people. Like if you go to a, a junior high school cafeteria, if you just put the leafy grain things first, 
in line, kids will eat more of them. Same kid. Nobody has to say anything. It's like if you make the default position something that's in their favor, there's kids that are not going to take any salad and are going to go straight for the fries, right? But they can just show like, hey, we should give people choice, but we should also like make the default probably in their best favor. Like, you know, like (laughs) I live in one of the states where you don't have to wear a helmet on a motorcycle. And it's like, you must know very little about motorcycle accident statistics to choose not to wear one. Okay. Right. <laughs> and like, or you're just extraordinary. Like, I'm not rebellious. saying. <laughs> yeah, but like, like I'm not even saying that they sh- it should be mandated. To everyone, everywhere, always has to wear a motorcycle helmet. But can we make it like, hey, listen, if you're that intense not, about not wearing the helmet and you want to do something th- so incredibly high risk, how about you have to go into the DMV and like submit a thing that you know the risk you're taking of like. Your fatality, you know, as a motorcycle rider myself, right? Now I'm I'm mostly riding dirt bikes in the forest. But, like, if they have to look at something and go, like, I acknowledge that I am looking at the statistics of the the portion of people that leave some of their brain on the road when they they do this, and I'm just going for it. And you, like, you make that little extra effort. Then, like, in some ways, we let people skydive and do all sorts of risky things. So. I just think I just think I'm excited that what you guys have done has made it possible to bring people who are quite frankly excluded from the highest rate of return potential investments that are in our and uh, anyways I don't know I hope that SEC listens to you and that there's there's some more <laughs> ways for people to get in besides yeah uh, just the number in their account oh for sure well thank you yeah and like I mean what what we're starting with is the obvious you know like we. We found a, a fund framework that will work the way it currently stands in our situation. And so we can apply it without having to change anything. But we have big ambitions to push back on the SEC and be a strong advocate to continue to open things up. Like we don't want it to have to be like this forever. You know, like people should be able to put money in a regular venture fund if they wanted to. And we want to see the the progress of the policy to get there. You know, and so, yeah, like the for us, it's, it's sort of like the way I see it is like, you know, Tesla just giving away all their patents and saying the progress of the industry at large helps our overall objective and ethos. And it also helps us because adoption and infrastructure and everything else. And so we want to give it to everybody. And that's kind of the way we feel about our legal structure. Like, it's not a secret. We're not going to try to hide it from anybody. As a matter of fact, we, we want to continue to open it to make this more prolific because it's what people deserve. Yeah. Like, obviously, you know. For like the general public in, you know, who are not going to spend the time to know, learn what they're doing, you know, back to Warren Buffett, risk comes from not knowing what you're doing, right? Like, I'm, I'm a big fan of him, you know, when he says, you know, go buy a Vanguard index, low cost index fund. If you're not, if you're not going to take the time to learn what you're doing, you know, but, but for the people who are going to take the time and they do have the interest and they are, they are willing to take the risk from a place of, place of research and and a well thought out place. I'm interested in how, I know we talked about this when we went to lunch, but can you explain again how you've used the 40 Act Fund to allow you to to take this to the, you know, to the general public? Yeah, for sure. So it's require a little bit more context so nobody gets lost. So the 40 Act Fund, think of it kind of like a big umbrella, right? And underneath this umbrella, there's there's all these like vertical options that are like prepackaged funds. And these these funds, you know, are ones that you recognize, like a mutual fund. It's basically like a, a prepackaged set of rules that a fund has to operate by for to meet certain objectives. 
And so when you register the fund, you have to, as a mutual fund, you have to follow these rules, right? And so just like as a mutual fund, there's dozens of other fund structures that since the 40s have been created to serve a very specific purpose. So venture capital funds are one of those. Mutual funds are another one. And you go around, you know, and REITs and other things are all, all part of these different predetermined structures. So the one that we landed on when we talked to the SEC, it's called an interval fund. And an interval fund, it was created, it's kind of a hybrid to use in different scenarios. It's been around for 30 years, but it's just never been applied in the world of venture capital. So when we were having discussions with the, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, we actually had a different thesis. We thought the SEC was concerned about risk. And so we originally said, well, hey, we just want to create a fund of funds, which means we just want to invest in other venture capital funds. So we'll pull money from everybody and then we'll go invest in VC funds. And that's like the least risky thing you can do. And there's there's pros and cons to all that. But it was about risk reduction. And so we approached them and they're like, yeah, you know, we don't really care about risk, actually. What we care about is liquidity. We, we want people to be able to access their money. You know, if grandma dies and they need to pay for a funeral, we need them to be able to get to their money in a reasonable amount of time. Being locked up for 10 or 15 years is, is what we perceive as the problem. So an interval fund was created for that purpose, was to create a kind of a some liquidity. And if you're not familiar with what liquidity is, liquidity is basically the ability to pull your money out of your investment. So like buying Apple stock is super liquid, right? You can buy it now, you can sell it in an hour. You know, it's, it's, it's super liquid. But putting money into a startup is illiquid. You know, you're putting that in and you won't get your money back for probably seven to 10 years, maybe longer. And so that's highly illiquid. And that's the problem that the, that the regulators had with it. And so we identified this interval fund structure and what it does is it allows us to pool money and make investments into companies, but that also has this mechanism that allows us to open up these little windows every six months where people can actually take some of their money out. And effectively what that's doing is, is we're allowing, in a way, like Bob that's coming into, into the fund is buying Mary's position that wants to leave the fund. And we're kind of facilitating this transaction, but it's not actually between Bob and Mary. It's actually us. We're like a market maker and we make that whole thing work. And so like the basics of the interval fund gets the best of both worlds. You can put money into a pooled vehicle. It's all professionally managed by us. We go out and we do professional searching for opportunities. We do deep due diligence. We take care of the companies after we make the investments. And you don't have to do anything. We take care of all that. And then if you ever need to actually get a hold of some of your money, you can access it during one of these liquidity windows and request a portion, or if you have to, maybe even all of your investments come out of the fund. And so that's ultimately what we've, we've been able to land on and what we've built our fund cash structures around. That might've been boring and too much information, how, how but often, that's the basics. Yeah, how, no, no, I'm super interested in this. How often do you have your, how often are redemptions available? Every six months. Okay, and, and the SEC was happy with that? Yes, they're actually the ones that presented it to us. So when we approached them, they said, hey, we've been thinking about interval funds. And I can't remember the name. They, they gave us three to look at. And we brought them all back. And we said, yeah. interval fund is the one that we can make work. So, and, and just for clarification, is an interval fund, I, I know you just covered this, so maybe I missed it. Do you do like a net asset value appraisal previous to that redemption period? Or what are you doing? Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. So, Buying into the fund, if we step back for a second, just like as a consumer, you're looking at the fund, you're looking at sweater and saying, you know, I want to invest. The way what it feels like is it feels like you're buying a stock because when you're putting money in, you're actually buying units in the fund. And those units are valued at net asset value or NAV is the short way of saying it. So NAV is a reflection of the unit you buy. 
So on day one, you know, if we launched and, and NAV was worth 20 bucks and you put in a thousand dollars, you now have 50 units inside the fund. And over time, like, I mean, so we're, we're pooling all these investments from regular people and then we're turning around and we're making investments in private companies, right? And then eventually those private companies are going to gain value. Some will fail, some will win really big, right? And as those change, that changes the NAV and it goes from 20 to 22 to 27 to whatever, right? So if I bought in, you know, January 1st, 2022, and I put in $1,000, five years later, you know, it might be worth $2,500 because we're tracking that NAV. And we actually strike a price on that NAV every day. We're looking at all the underlying assets every single day. And we put it in that NAV and we actually have to report that publicly. And we are audited by, we're either going to pick Deloitte. I probably shouldn't say so. We're picking one of the big four. <laughs> So we're working with them right now to be our auditor, to look at those valuations, make sure the money is going where it's supposed to, that everything's above board um, and make sure that that nav is accurate. So whenever you want to buy in or, or take your position out of the fund, you're always buying in or buying or selling out at whatever that nav price is, which is the fair value of all the underlying assets. So I just want to clarify on that. How do you do a daily nav calculation on, on a venture asset? So this was, I guess a lot of, of it just deeper. stays the same day to day. Exactly right. Yeah. So, and this is what we had deep discussions with the SEC because we said, you know, we can't speculate in between rounds. Like that's, that's really bad. You know, like a founder doesn't want us being like, oh, well, you know, the round was three months ago and now we think it's worth this, even though there hasn't been an official pricing event. So we only, uh, we do not speculate. We only go off institutional pricing changes with companies. So that's markups in price markdowns in price if that happens, complete write-offs if a company fails, or exit events when a company is sold or IPOs and we're able to get our investment back out of that company. Those are the only times that any and, given and that, asset changes. And so the markup and markdown, is that just what whatever the last round was valued at? Yes, that's correct. Yep. Yeah, so and that's what, what I mean by an institutional price change, right? So that's like when a VC fund is involved and they say, hey, you know, they raised a seed round at a $10 million post-money valuation, and now you just raised it a $50 million post-money. So that's the new price. So the share price just went up by 5x. Yeah, and so with the redemptions, you know, with the redemptions, because you are not selling the underlying asset, you're, are you, you're replacing them with a new investor, essentially? Yes, that's basically, excuse me, that is basically the way it works. Yes. So it's not the two investors talking to each other at all, but new money coming in yeah. takes the place of money going out. It's kind of like, I mean, think of it like, uh, you know, a bank has cash requirements, you know, and so we're kind of the same way. For every dollar that comes in, we're setting some aside for the next redemption period to buy people out that want to leave, effectively the way it happens. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how, how much innovation there is in the asset class itself. You know, people inventing an Amazon, invent all these types of companies and how often there is not any innovation in the structures <laughs> to purchase them. Like you think about how incredibly innovative the portfolio companies are of most venture firms and how most venture firms do a, a two and 20, just like all the others for an accredited raise. And there's it's in some ways, it's interesting how little innovation has happened in the structure of the fund world even with the digitization of the portfolio companies they're investing in, you know? It's terrible. Seriously been the same since the early 70s when venture capital was born. And everyone just does this copy-paste of like, well, they did it like this. And it's funny because like you dig into the industry and the only ones that like the two and 20 model are the venture capitalists. 
of the GPs because the LPs and the funds, they all hate it. I mean, they look at it and, you know, it's only good for them if the portfolio wins. If it doesn't win, it's really not good for them at all because they paid out a lot in management fees in a period of time when nothing good happened. And so uh, the, probably the biggest shift I've seen, and this happened since we talked, I mean, this was just like two weeks ago, that Sequoia announced that they're changing their overarching fund structure. Did you see that? No. It's probably one of the coolest things I've seen. And it's actually, it reflects a lot of what we're doing with with our fund, frankly, not, not in the fact of taking retail money, but in the, the long-term nature of it. So for, for those that are listening, a traditional venture fund is typically set up on a two and 20 model, which is a 2% management fee and a 20% carry, which is 20% of the winnings that come out of the fund eventually. If, if, and so, and it's usually a, it, it, not usually, it's always a fixed amount. So you raise a hundred million dollar fund and then it's fixed like that. You go and deploy that money and then that fund lasts for 12 years or so until all the portfolio companies have matured and either been acquired or died. And then the fund closes and you have your final result. So what Sequoia did that's different is they basically just created a parent company and that parent company is never going to end. So when you invest, you don't invest in the individual funds anymore. You invest in this overarching parent company. Then the parent company allocates money as it deems fit to all of their underlying funds that are traditional. And so when you invest in this parent company, there's no end. You just you're, you're a part of everything Sequoia does into the future forever. And one of the biggest shifts or like as part of that, one of the things that they've said that they are doing this for is because when a company that's super high potential IPOs and still has huge growth in it, previously they were obligated to sell their shares once they IPO'd so they could pay back their investors. But now, because of this overarching long-term structure, they don't have to sell their shares. So when Uber goes public at, you know, whatever, a $20 billion valuation, and they know it could be worth $250 billion, Sequoia doesn't have to sell that position. They can keep riding the wave of success and gains that come in the future which is pretty fascinating. So from our perspective, we have kind of a similar feel in that our structure is uh, evergreen, is what we call it. So it means we can raise money into it forever and we can invest and build a portfolio forever and have actually hundreds or even thousands of companies in our portfolio, which is dramatically different from a traditional venture fund. So it's kind of cool to see that happening. Sequoia is probably the first one that's done anything different in 40, 50 years. Yeah, it's funny. So I'm just on the internet reading about this exact thing. And one of their partners said, our industry is still beholden to the rigid 10-year fund cycle pioneered in the 1970s. He says, as, shrit, as chips shrank and software flew off the cloud, venture capital kept operating on the business equivalent of floppy disks. <laughs> that is exactly right. Yeah. And so, like, I mean, we feel that, like, we're really going to be shaking things up because the dynamics of our fund structure change the way that we invest and the way that we look at companies and opportunities and how fast we can move and how it mitigates risk because we have a larger portfolio and how we we basically bridge across macroeconomic cycles that happen in the market where, like, an individual fund, if they got – so if, if a fund launched in, I don't know, June of 2019 and made a bunch of investments and then COVID hit – that, that fund is probably screwed because a lot of their money has been deployed and they're, they're not going to be able to get any good companies. The companies that did invest in likely got crushed or a portion of their companies got crushed, which will return, kill their return profiles. But you take Sweater as an example. And when COVID happens and there's a big dip, we have a lot that's happened before it. And we're going to have a lot that happens after it that levelizes the risk. And so any given fund we have is never going to get caved completely because of a macroeconomic event. And that's a very interesting advantage for investors. Yeah, no kidding. So yeah, tell us about the future. What do you, what do you guys have planned for next year you're allowed to talk about? 
Oh, we talk about most things. I just, I, I can't, what do they say? I can't, oh, not groom. Groom sounds so dirty. We can't prep the market or whatever. What's the word? I, I'm forgetting the word they want. But anyways, like, so I, I can't convince you to do anything or, or tell you anything about returns and stuff like that. So that's the only thing I can't talk about. But basically, so we are up to, we're launching a Q1. We have, uh, we're going to cross 50,000 people on our wait list this week, which is super exciting. There's very high intent with that group uh, to come in and set up accounts. We're expecting to probably raise, I don't know, 30 to 50 million in the first one to two quarters that we're live. We'll raise 100 million in the first year. But overall, you know, people that are on the wait list will be able to gain access to the app and actually make a live investment in Q1. And then we'll open publicly in late Q1 for anyone to be able to come in and set up and, and get moving. And then it's off to the races. We got a lot to do. That's exciting. Well, congrats on all the success, man. Yeah, there's a lot more to come. <laughs> it's like we've just been like laying the foundations of a house and now there's a lot to build. But we got the land and, you know, we got the cement down. Now we just we got to frame the thing and do all the finished work and then live oh. in it. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> okay, very cool. Thanks for making time for this. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for putting up with, with my conditions. Hopefully you felt a little bit of warm air coming through your window <laughs> yeah, from Miami. Yeah. I think I heard some of the taxis for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Well, thank you for spending time with me. Much appreciated. Okay. Bye, everyone.